Our sermon passage this morning comes from Acts chapter 2. That can be found on page 910. Here in Acts chapter 2, we pick up in the middle of Peter's sermon after the Holy Spirit has come upon the believers there. Start in verse 22, and we're actually going to read through the end of the chapter, not to put the slide guy into a panic. Don't worry about those verses. We'll read through uh, verse 21 through the end of chapter 2. Peter preaches, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ of the Christ that he was that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, 
and they were selling the, their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's so good to be together today. I was reminded of how painful it was last Easter to celebrate and to remember alone, separated from one another, and so it's good to be uh, together uh, such as it is. Lord willing, perhaps next Easter, uh, there won't be any uh, of our brothers and sisters watching on live stream, but we'll all be able to be all together, but it's good, uh, it's good to be in the same room uh, with so many of us today. As we think about God's word, I, I want to start by uh, asking you, what is it that makes you feel guilty? Our wider society has a, a strange relationship with guilt. On one hand, we've been taught that guilt is something unhelpful and even unnatural. So Sigmund Freud believed that most negative behavior patterns that manifested themselves in someone's life could be traced back to the guilt that people felt in response to their impulses and their actions. Freud believed that subconsciously all children feared losing their parents' love, and so guilt developed in a child to help them behave in socially acceptable ways so that their parents would love and approve of them. Right, you can see how if that's how you understand guilt, well, guilt's kind of a bad thing. It's something that's been imposed on you from the outside. It's, it's rooted in insecurity uh, and fear, it's something that twists you up in knots. In fact, much of modern psychology has developed with the very purpose of freeing people from those kinds of negative feelings. Uh, people continue to experience guilt, but we, we tend to see it as something to be treated, something to be done away with as soon as possible. Even though we might reject guilt as unhelpful and even a psychologically damaging and unnecessary relic of the past, we, we don't seem like we can quite get away from it. No matter what we say or do, almost all of us are plagued by some sense of guilt, some sense that we're not doing enough, that we don't know the right thing to do, that we've messed up in ways that can't be repaired, that we've squandered opportunities, that we aren't the person we're supposed to be. It turns out guilt is a little bit harder to shake than we might have imagined. Just taking a pill or learning to accept and forgive ourselves, it doesn't seem like it quite works. But what we see in our passage from the book of Acts that Seth just read for us is a, a huge crowd of people overwhelmed by a sense of guilt at what they had done. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you see there in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, the, the crowd is, it says, cut to the heart by Peter's words. That's, a, that's an expression of intense remorse. That is an extremely negative emotion. What might surprise us as citizens of the 21st century is that this sense of guilt that came on the crowd turned out to be an, a really good thing. 
And in order to explain why, we first need to get our, our bearings in the passage a bit. We've jumped into the, the middle of a sermon, into the middle of a public address, and so we'll be helped by a, a little bit of context. So we're in the book of Acts that was written uh, by a man named Luke as a follow-up to his first book, which was called The Gospel According to Luke. That's how we refer to it. It was a, a history of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, Luke refers to the book of Acts, his sort of follow-up book, as, as, as an account, or in, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, he refers to the gospel according to Luke as an account of all that Jesus began to do and teach, right? That gives us the sense that there's a lot more to come. And in many ways, the book of Acts is, is Luke telling us about the ongoing works of Jesus through his people. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read that he spent 40 days teaching them. And at the conclusion of that time, he ascended into heaven. He told his disciples to wait in the city until they would receive the Holy Spirit that he was sending to them. We read about that in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. When chapter 2 opens, we are in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was an annual harvest festival that was celebrated by the Jewish people 50 days after Passover. So we're roughly seven weeks or so after Jesus' crucifixion and after his resurrection. The city, Jerusalem, the capital city, would have been swollen with people who had come into the town for the celebration. And what we see at the beginning of chapter 2 is that the followers of Jesus are suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit. And they, they begin to miraculously speak in such a way that all of the people who are in town from, from foreign cities can hear them speaking in their own language. The people of Jerusalem have trouble understanding what's going on. Some wonder if the disciples are drunk, even though it's only about 9 o'clock in the morning. And in response to the sort of confusion of the crowd, Peter, one of the leaders of the disciples, he launches into a sermon to explain to them what's happening. He tells them that they are witnesses to the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy given through the prophet Joel, that God would pour out his spirit on his people and he would save everyone who calls on his name. And that's where we jump into the book of Acts this Easter morning in the middle of Peter's sermon. And as we go on, I, what I'd like to do is see two things as we look at Peter's sermon. We don't have time to deal with everything in, in close detail, but first, let's look and see the evidence that God's given. And then second, let's see the problem that the people have. So God's evidence and the people's problem. So first, let's look at God's evidence. There in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, Peter says that Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested to you by God. That is to say, God had given the crowd some key pieces of evidence. They didn't have to guess who Jesus was. They didn't have to guess what they should do in response. Uh, it's as though, through different historical events that Peter is going to unpack, God has hung a big identification tag around Jesus' neck that says, Lord and Christ. Uh, Peter points out really four different lines of evidence here. Uh, first, God has shown who Jesus is through the miracles that he performed. So look there in verse 22. Peter says, men of Israel. 
hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, they record for us at least 30 different miracles that Jesus performed, though it's clear that he performed many, many more than that. Some of the miracles that Jesus performed demonstrated his control over nature. Things like calming a ferocious storm with just a word. Some of his miracles uh, demonstrated that he had come to put an end to the works of evil. And so he did things like cast out demons. Uh, some of his miracles and mighty works uh, demonstrated that he came to bring salvation and to restore creation. So he did things like restore a woman's son from the dead. The things that Jesus did often left people stunned, confused, amazed, e even scrambling for answers. They'd ask themselves questions like, hold on, isn't this the son of the carpenter from Nazareth? How exactly is he doing these things? Who does he think he is? They'd ask questions like, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What's going on that, that Jesus speaks words and evil spirits are forced to comply with his commands? Throughout John's gospel in particular, these kinds of miracles are referred to as signs. John identifies seven signs in particular that Jesus performed, turning water into wine, healing an official's son, uh, healing a man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind in John chapter 9, and then ultimately in John 11, his sort of final sign, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. Right? It's significant that John would call these miracles signs. Peter even picks up on that in his language there in verse 22. Right? These miracles, these mighty acts of power, they aren't purely an end unto themselves. Right? So if you go out to the corner of North York Road and, and Church Road here, just a, a hundred yards from where we are, there's a road sign that says North York Road on it. Right? The, the sign isn't the road itself. It, it's meant to help you identify the road that you're looking for. Right? In the same way, Jesus performed all of these miracles. They're all signs because they, they point beyond themselves. They're meant to help us orient ourselves. They're meant to help us understand a greater truth, that Jesus is the Savior sent by God. Now, maybe you think miracles aren't a very good piece of evidence. I mean, why should the crowd in Jerusalem believe Peter? And why should you? I mean, what's to say the disciples weren't just making all of this up and just ascribing to Jesus mighty works that he never actually did? Well, it's not very clear why they would lie about this. But also, notice what Peter says there at the end of verse 22. He reminds the, the crowds of all the different kinds of things Jesus did. Right? He talks about mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. And then he says, as you yourselves know. You see, Peter can assume that, that many of the people there had been eyewitnesses 
Or at least if they hadn't been eyewitnesses, they had talked with eyewitnesses. They had heard reports and stories of Jesus' powerful miracles, the the amazing wonders that, that he had performed. The news of these things had made its way all around the region. And so Peter can point to these miracles, to these signs, and say, you yourselves know about them. Right? These were facts that weren't in dispute. Right? These people, they, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't worship him as God's uh, anointed Savior. But they didn't deny that he had performed all these miracles. Right? Peter doesn't seem to be worried in the least that that anyone would contradict him, that anyone would raise their hand and say, I don't think Jesus actually did all of those things. And so Peter gives us that first piece of evidence. God the Father is telling us who Jesus is through the miracles that he performed. The second way that God attested to Jesus' identity is through his death. Peter doesn't pull punches there in verse 23. He says, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up. He was handed over by Judas to the religious authorities. And then by those authorities, he was handed over to the Romans. With the help of lawless men, I think Peter's talking about the Romans here, he was put to death on the cross. Now it's not immediately obvious again how Jesus' death serves as God's way of giving accreditation to him. In fact, it seems like just the opposite. It seems more likely that the cross was God's judgment on Jesus, letting him be murdered like that. But that's to miss the truth that's in the middle of Peter's account of what happened. Remember, he says there in verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So in one sense, Judas is the one who handed Jesus over to death. But in another deeper sense, it was God himself who did it. God the Father had sovereignly determined that Jesus should be crucified because he knew that only Jesus could bear the sins of his people. On the face of it, Jesus' death looked like proof that he'd been rejected by God, but when you look more closely, you see that it's, it's the evidence that he was the redeemer sent by God. He died in order to bear our sin, in order to act as our substitute, in order to be a sacrifice for us. And so Jesus' death even points to his identity, the one sent by God to save us. The third way that God has attested to Jesus is through his resurrection from the dead. That's really the major point that Peter's making. There in verse 24, he says, Even though God had determined that Jesus would die on the cross, he raised him up. Right? In case you had any doubts, the resurrection is both a powerful vindication of Jesus' claims, and Peter says it's the, it's the very destruction of death itself. That Peter there in verse 24 borrows a phrase from the world of childbirth. He says, God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death. That word pang has the sense of, of childbirth. It's as if God made death give birth. 
right, to do just the opposite of what it normally does. Death, if, it, if you think of it as sort of a personified idea, right, death grabs on and it, it, it encloses, it, it brings life to an end, it, it never goes the other way, it never flows in the other direction. Once you go into the grave, you stay in the grave, but, but God has made this, the, the grave a spring of life for Jesus. Right there, there couldn't be words more stirring. He says there, it's not possible for him to be held by death. God has made the grave give birth. Friends, death, not just the physical sleep of death, but that, that great loss of our soul, that ancient penalty for sin, that, that great tormentor of the human race. Death burst apart at the seams when it tried to hold Jesus in. Peter says there simply, it was not possible for death to hold him. Jesus submitted to death as our substitute, as our payment, but then he was raised from the dead in inexpressible glory and power. You know, it's interesting in a sense, Peter doesn't really try to prove that the resurrection happened, right? He's, he's in Jerusalem. There's a tomb right down the street. It's either empty or it's not. But he does give us sort of two pieces of evidence for the reality of the resurrection. Uh, first there, Peter shows them that the Old Testament had told us about the resurrection in advance, that it had actually been predicted and prophesied by King David. If you look there in verses 25 to 28, he quotes from Psalm 16 which we read earlier in our service, which is written some thousand years before these events took place. And in that psalm, David prophesied that the Messiah would be raised from the dead, that the one that God would send to reign forever on his throne wouldn't be abandoned to the grave, that his flesh there in verse 27 would never decay. There in verse 30, Peter says that David was acting as a prophet when he wrote that psalm, because that's what happened to Jesus. Peter is pointing out that the resurrection wasn't some crazy, unexpected sort of left turn in the history of Israel. It's exactly what God had said through King David, acting as a prophet a thousand years earlier in Psalm 16. The second piece of, of evidence for the resurrection was their own eyewitness testimony. So there in verse 32, speaking of himself and the other disciples, Peter says, we are all witnesses of this resurrection. Friends, that's amazing coming out of Peter's mouth. Here was a man who 50 days earlier had been a simpering coward, who at one point had even denied knowing Jesus. But here, standing before thousands in Jerusalem, he claims to have seen Jesus raised from the dead. He is boldly proclaiming that Jesus is alive. And if you read through the rest of the New Testament, things really don't go all that well from an earthly perspective for the disciples. They get beaten up a lot. They get thrown in jail. They pretty much all die for their faith or die in exile because of their faith. Right, don't, don't get it twisted. Peter and the other disciples, they are not riding around in ancient limos as sort of the CEOs of Jesus Corp. Right? They gain nothing from any of this. 
if they're not telling the truth. If Jesus isn't really raised from the dead, their lives are squandered and wasted. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul even says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, I'm to be pitied above all other men. Right? He says, I've seen the risen Jesus, and I put all my eggs in that basket. Right? These, these were not men who had other things to gain by lying. Right? No one would knowingly give their life for a hoax. Their eyewitness testimony is compelling. At the heart of everything that Christians build their lives on, at the heart of everything that Christians stake their future upon, is a fact, a cold, hard piece of history. Right? The resurrection of Jesus isn't some beautiful symbol. It's not a vague hope. It's not a spiritual feeling. Peter and the other disciples here are reminding us that it is something that took place in space and time. And it's something that changes everything. And that brings us to the fourth and final way that God has testified to Jesus' identity. And that is his ascension into heaven. If you see there in verses 33 to 35. Peter tells the crowd that Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of God. Right, That's his explanation for for what's going on there at Pentecost, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand, the, the place of honor and authority, at the right hand of God the Father. There in verse 33, Peter says it's from there that he has poured out his Holy Spirit on his people. That's what the crowd was witnessing. Right? Peter's saying if Jesus isn't enthroned in heaven, then there's no explanation for this incredible display of the Spirit's power and presence. And again, King David is called upon as a prophetic witness there in verses 34 and 35. Peter reminds them, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter's referring to Psalm 110, where David looked off prophetically into the future and saw the Lord, saw Yahweh speaking to the Messiah. David calls him my Lord. So the Lord, Yahweh, God himself, speaking to the one that David calls my Lord, the, the Messiah. David himself didn't ascend into the heavens, but he saw his Lord. He saw the Christ. He saw the long-promised, long-awaited ruler who would rule on David's throne forever. He saw the Christ, the Messiah, enthroned on high in power with all the world as his footstool. And so again, you have this ancient prediction, this ancient prophecy of what would happen when God sent his Redeemer, what would happen when the Christ would come. And Peter's showing them here that Jesus fulfilled it exactly. So put it all together. Amazing works, a, a God-ordained death, a death-defying resurrection, and an enthronement on high. Peter says that's Jesus' resume. That's how God the Father has accredited Jesus. That's proof of his identity. There's no other option. He wasn't merely a great teacher. He wasn't a charlatan. 
He wasn't merely a prophet. None of those other explanations, other descriptions of Jesus fit all the facts. Who has God proved that Jesus is? Well, there in verse 36, Peter gives an answer. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Friends, there's no higher praise available. He's saying Jesus is Lord. That's divine language. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is over all, that he is the supreme one, that he is God himself. And not only that, but this Lord is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king sent by God to save his people. And so Peter's saying that the evidence all points to one inescapable conclusion, that Jesus is the eternal, universally ruling, infinitely powerful, promised king who came to save his people. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the thing that you must know for certain. When you add together the miracles that Jesus performed, the death that he died, his resurrection and his ascension in heaven, there's only one conclusion. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Friend, you don't need to investigate other religions. You don't need to untangle other philosophies before you can know this. The only question that matters when it comes to Christianity is this. Was Jesus raised from the dead? If he was, all your other questions take a back seat. If he was, then he is who he claimed to be and who the apostles said that he was. If he, if he was raised from the dead, he is Lord and Christ. And you need to worship him. If you have questions about that, if you want to think more about that, I'd urge you to participate in the Christianity Explored class that begins on Monday on Zoom. Again, if you didn't catch the information at the beginning of our service, you can talk to me or Seth or Mike or, or really anybody here. We can help you get signed up for that. I would not put this off to the side. Life has a way of crowding out uh, these kinds of questions. But friend, the most important thing for you to figure out, the most important thing for you to know for certain is that Jesus is the Christ sent by God. And if you are a Christian, I hope your faith is strengthened when you take a fresh look at Jesus' identity. Brothers and sisters, we haven't put our trust in some vague idea or a concept or a myth. Our hope is in flesh and blood realities. Our hope is in a miracle-working, sacrifice-making, death-defeating, spirit-sending Savior who is both Lord and Christ. Brothers and sisters, that should give us courage and hope as we walk through life in a world that has a very different set of values and priorities, a world that doesn't always see Jesus clearly, that doesn't esteem him as much as it esteems its own wisdom and its own opinions. So Christian, whatever it is that your boss or your friends or your professors or people online, whatever it is that they think, the only thing that matters is that you know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. 
But before we get too excited, there is one difficulty with all of this, and that brings us to our second point, which is the people's problem. It is great that Jesus is Lord in Christ, the all-powerful one who reigns over all the world. That is great news, unless you happen to be one of the people who killed him. Right? Peter tells the crowd twice what they already knew in their hearts. They killed Jesus. There in verse 23, he says, you crucified him. In verse 36, he calls him this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter reminds the, the crowd that, that they had cried out for Jesus' blood. That they had stood by approvingly as he was mocked and tortured. When Pilate wanted to release Jesus, they pled with him to have Jesus crucified and to release a criminal instead. Right? They had not just killed an innocent man. Right? That would be bad enough. That would linger on your conscience forever. Right? Could you imagine the guilt that you would feel if you were responsible for the death of an innocent man? But no, even worse than that, they had killed the Christ sent by God. And I've never killed someone personally, but my guess is that if you kill someone, you really, really hope they stay dead. You do not want the pangs of death loosed in their case, right? You do not want the blood of the resurrected Lord of the universe on your hands, right? The crowd could know for certain that Jesus was both Lord and Christ, but in their case, that was hardly reassuring news. We might normally think of the resurrection of Jesus as a happy, comforting event, and it is. It means that Jesus is vindicated. It means that his death was acceptable to God the Father in our place. It means that we can have new life now and eternal life in a world made new. That is all good news. But there's also this thread that runs through the New Testament that the resurrection of Jesus is tied also to the judgment of Jesus as well. In the Gospel accounts, we see that God the Father has given to Jesus the privilege and the authority to act as the judge of the world. So for just one example, if you remember back in Matthew 25, a few months ago, we saw Jesus teaching about what it would be like when he returned in glory. Remember when the Son of Man comes on the clouds with his angels and he, he divides the nations and he passes judgment on them. Well, friends, that only makes sense if Jesus isn't dead anymore. If he's still in the tomb, he's not judging anyone. But because Jesus is risen, he is both savior and judge. So a bit later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is speaking to uh, people in Athens. And he says of God the Father in Acts 17 verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? If you have doubts about whether you will one day face Jesus as your judge, God's given you proof by raising him from the dead. And so friends, that's actually a problem, not just for the people in Jerusalem, but for all of us. You may not be directly responsible for Jesus' crucifixion like the people in Jerusalem were. But, but let's be honest, we're not any better than they are. 
are we? Right, if we were in their shoes, do you have any doubt that you would make the same choices? Or do you think you're so much better, so much wiser, so much more enlightened than they were? Right, you don't need me to tell you that when people get together in crowds and emotions get rolling, they sometimes, they oftentimes reveal a deeper, more wicked side of themselves. Right, a side that they keep hidden most of the time, but a side that is most certainly there. Friends, remember what the Bible tells us about ourselves. We are made in God's image, and so we are capable of love and kindness and courage and sacrifice. But also, because we have rebelled against God, because we've turned our backs on him, because we haven't been content to live with him as our king, but we've lived in the way that seems best to us, because of that, we're also capable of doing all sorts of wrongdoing. We are guilty of all sorts of sin. We sin against God and we sin against other people. We don't love God the way that he deserves and we don't love others as we should. We do and we say things, we think things when other people aren't around. Things that would cause us great shame and guilt if others knew about them. And so when we meet Jesus as our judge, we will stand before him as his enemy. As a, as a spiritually dead and guilty sinner. So what should we do? If the risen Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the judge of all the world, and we are guilty sinners, then what hope do we have? How can the resurrection of Christ be good news for us? Well, I think we start where the crowd in Jerusalem started. As we've already seen there in verse 37, it says, now, when they had heard this, that is to say, when they realized that the one they had crucified was the Lord and Christ, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They felt their guilt. They didn't minimize it. They didn't make excuses for what they'd done. They didn't try to blame their upbringing, their brain chemistry, historical forces beyond their control. They didn't object to Peter's characterization of them or get mad at them for, or get mad at him for suggesting that they ought to feel guilt. Luke tells us they were cut to the heart. As the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and their ears and their hearts, they realized what they had done. The truth lacerated them, and they were devastated. And so, friends, that's where we start. The, the good news of salvation begins with the bad news of guilt and condemnation. We need to ask this question of ourselves. Have we been cut to the heart? Have you been cut to the heart by the depth and the breadth of your sin? If you don't feel how bad the bad news is, you'll never experience how good the good news is. You'll only ever treasure Christ as much as you hate your sin. So friend, have you ever felt heartbroken? Have you ever wept over the things that you've done? Have you felt the weight of your guilt? Have you felt the, the rightness of God's condemnation. 
Have you ever considered the awful suffering of Jesus on the cross? And thought about the fact that it was your sin that made it necessary if you were ever to be saved. I think here's how you can tell if someone's been cut to the heart. That person will ask the same question that the crowd asked. What should I do? That's the question asked, that someone asks when they finally understand what's going on. These people are willing to do anything. There are no holds barred, nothing held back. They just want to know what to do. They just want to know whether there is any way out of this desperately dangerous situation in which they find themselves. They are willing for God to set the agenda through Peter and tell them how to be saved. And friend, maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel the stirrings of God's Holy Spirit in you, creating in you regret for sin and a growing longing to be right with God. Maybe you can feel just how bad it would be to be on the wrong side of the risen Christ when he comes to judge the world. And maybe you're wondering, what should I do? Friend, listen to what Peter says there in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, friends, there is forgiveness. Then in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Do you see? Peter says, save yourself. This world is perishing. You are perishing, but you have been provided a lifeline. There is salvation. Simply take hold of it. See, Peter's calling them to repent. It's nothing less than a wholehearted turnaround. Up until this point, their life has been characterized by opposition to God and his Christ. They had clung tightly to their own control over their life. They did what they wanted to do. They, they did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. But now Peter's saying, let go of that and take hold of salvation in Christ alone. Turn from your rebellion against God and turn to him. Peter says, be baptized as a sign of your allegiance to him. Friends, this repentance that Peter mentions, it's more than just feeling badly for one's faults. It's not less than that, but it's more than mere regret. After all, the, the crowd already had regret. What they needed to do was to act on it. They needed to, to regret and then repent, to radically reorient their lives around Jesus. They needed to be baptized to express their trust in him, their willingness to do whatever it is that he said. They needed to become followers of Christ. Friends, there's a Jesus out there. There is a Jesus that's floating abroad in the popular culture. We might call him Jesus Light. He's a Jesus who offers to do anything we want him to do without demanding anything in return. He's a Jesus who's just happy and content if you'll pay lip service to him being Lord and Christ. But you can maintain control over your own life. There's a Jesus who's just a, a fill me up and forgive me, but, 
but leave me as I am kind of Jesus. But friends, the only drawback with that Jesus is that he doesn't exist and he can't help and he can't save. The real Jesus, Peter says, is Lord and Christ, judge of all, ruling in power and glory. And so there's no coming to him without repentance, without faith, without following him. Friends, that's the lesson to take away from Peter's speech here. If you're not a follower of Christ, I pray that the Spirit of God would cut you to your heart, that he would show you who Jesus is, that he would show you what you've done by living your life in rebellion against him. And I pray that you would understand the amazing grace, the forgiveness of sins and new life being offered to you by the very one that you've offended. Friend, Jesus is offering you forgiveness He's willing to pour out his spirit on you. He came to die for the very sins of people like you and me, people responsible for his death. Friend, there is mercy for you. There's a free gift that God will give to anyone who turns from his sin and turns to Jesus in genuine faith. And for those of us who have experienced that grace and mercy, if you'll allow me one last peek into Acts chapter 2. Let's look just at this one thing at the very end of the passage. Let me read to you verses 41 to 47. Look what happened in the wake of Peter's sermon. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You get a sense of the excitement, the energy, and the joy of those early days. Right? They were, there was something so compelling about the people who'd been filled with God's spirit that, that Luke even tells us there that the, the early Christians were enjoying favor with everyone in all the eyes of the people. 3,000 souls took hold of eternal life that day in response to Peter's sermon. And, and Luke tells us more and more seemed to join every day. And the lives of these people were being transformed. They began to, to crave hearing more of God's word and fellowship with God's people. They began to freely share all that they had. They received what they did have with a newfound gladness and generosity in their hearts. But as we wrap up this morning, I want to I zero in on what Luke tells us there at the beginning of verse 47, that they were praising God. You see, of all of these responses, of these sort of newly minted followers of Jesus, I think this one response is the one that is unique to Christians, to the people who have been saved from this crooked generation. You can be generous to others without God, 
You can even look forward to coming to church without God. You can be happy and peaceful. You can enjoy hearing God's word taught. It's possible to do all of those things without really experiencing the salvation of the risen Christ. But only someone who's experienced what it is to be cut to the heart and to cry, on, cry out and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and to receive from him forgiveness of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit, only that person is able to praise God for his salvation. So the 20th century preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once commented to this effect. He said, the devil has never praised God. He can make people happy, but whiskey can make people happy. The fact that a thing can make you happy doesn't prove that it's right. There are drugs that can make you happy. You see, the devil can come and he can counterfeit all these things. If a man says, I'm happy, it doesn't prove he's a Christian. It can be counterfeited. There's only one thing I know of that the devil cannot counterfeit, praising God. The devil never does that, never. The devil's never made anybody praise God. He can counterfeit a belief in God. That's a very different thing. The apostle James tells us in his epistle, the devils also believe and tremble. The devil has never praised God. He can persuade people that they believe in God. If it suits his purpose, he can transform himself into an angel of light and encourage people to believe in God and to be religious. He's doing that in large numbers today. But there's one thing he's never done and, can't, and he can't do it, and that is to make people praise God. He can give you a counterfeit intellectual interest. He can give you a counterfeit interest in God's people, a counterfeit interest in communion service, a counterfeit interest in prayer, a counterfeit joy and gladness, but he's never made anybody praise God. Why? Because he hates God. Friends, a way to know whether you've experienced the same thing that these people in Jerusalem had experienced is, is simply whether your heart is moved to praise God. Right? If you've felt your sin and the weight of condemnation that you deserve, if you've looked upon the gift of God's Son nailed to a cross for you, if you've seen with the eyes of faith the glory of the resurrection and the majesty of the Lord and Christ enthroned on high, too mighty, too pure, too glorious for death to hold him, if you felt the joy and awe of knowing that you've been saved from this crooked generation, knowing that you've been brought from death to eternal life, from having no hope other than the certainty of judgment to having a glorious inheritance kept for you in heaven, if you've tasted that, then your heart will have to praise him. If you were stranded on a desert island, and after years of isolation and hardship, you saw on the horizon a ship sent by your family to search for you and to find you and rescue you. Or if you desperately needed an organ transplant and at just the last moment someone came forward to volunteer a donation. If you were buried in an avalanche and you suddenly realized after many days trapped there in the snow and ice that, that you could hear the sounds of many people working with machines solely trying to free you. If you were dying of a rare disease and a pharmaceutical company offered to spend billions to find a cure for you. 
Think how easy it would be in your heart to praise those people, to praise your rescuer. Think of how natural and right it is for someone who's been saved from that kind of peril purely by the, the care and initiative of another. Think how inevitable, think how fitting it is for that person to praise. Brothers and sisters, that's the application for those of us who have experienced the joy and wonder of Christ's salvation. And how kind it is that what God wants from us, that what he requires of us, is the one thing for which he's put a great passion in our hearts. Praise God. Rejoice in all that he's given you. Delight in his love, the love that we thought about in Good, on Good Friday from 1 John chapter 4. That's what God wants. You don't have to go out and earn his love. He's already given it to you. He simply wants your joy. He wants your delight. He wants your worship. Well, friends, if we know Christ's salvation, if we've experienced that, that praise that really is the flip side of guilt that we thought about at the beginning of our time together this morning, right? God has taken our guilt and he's replaced it with praise, right? If we know that, if we, if we felt that, then, then friends, we don't have to minimize our faults. We don't have to walk away from feelings of guilt. We don't have to distract ourselves, but we have a real solution to our problem of guilt. Christ has taken it on himself. And he's replaced it with praise. So we come now, friends, to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we come not to remember a dead man, but to meet the risen and reigning Lord and Christ who invites us to come and celebrate at the table with him. And we come with hearts filled with praise. So let's pray and then sing and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we delight in the salvation that you have provided for us through the gift of your Son. And we thank you that you so loved the world that you sent him so that we would not have to perish but could have everlasting life. Father, what do we say to that kind of love? unearned, unsought, unimaginable. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your grace, that you came to seek and save the lost, that as a physician you came not for the, the well but for the sick, that you were a friend to tax collectors and sinners like us. Lord Jesus, what grace that you would go to the cross in our place. What salvation that you would rise again in glory and triumph. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you, would you cut us to our hearts? Would you point us to Christ? Spirit, would you give us great joy and praise? And we ask all these things in the Lord's name. Amen.